The scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. God. We acknowledge that some things in this text are confusing and interesting and we're scratching our heads. So Lord, I ask that you give us wisdom, you give us clarity as we look at your word this morning. I pray that you would be glorified as we talk about what we do when we celebrate your death, burial, and resurrection, when we, when we partake of bread and wine together. So this way I pray, amen. So you will notice this morning that we have almost come to the end of chapter 11. Starting next week, as Jake has already articulated, the summer's weird in Vancouver. So we're, we always push pause on our regular series, and we have a summer series. So, so starting next week, we will have a summer series, or actually two summer series that we will be going through, and we will pick up in chapter 12, and we'll all be waiting with bated breath in the fall. So with that, uh, last week, this is like uh, communion part two. Uh, last week, Jake, Jake explained the what of our text. What is communion? And we read the whole text this morning. Um, he articulated that what we actually celebrate at the end of our gathering, and we celebrate every single week, it's not some sort of weird added hybrid thing that we add on to the end. It's not sort of like, like, who, like who thinks it's a good idea to come and drink horrible grape juice and like paper thin stuff. So there's a reason why we celebrate this, and it's actually the, the pinnacle and the highlight of our worship experience. When we consume the bread... When we drink the wine, each time we participate, we realize that this is where the past, the present, and the future connect. We look back to not only the Passover where Jake articulated, but we look back to a new covenant in Jesus' blood on the cross. We looked back to what Jesus has done, and then we look forward to what he has already accomplished for us. In the cross, mankind is reconciled to God. The body and the blood of Jesus, in that we are made new. 
And this is what Jake referred to last week as the, the vertical orientation or the vertical aspect of the Lord's table. Each time we partake, we proclaim the work of Jesus on the cross until future be, glory becomes our reality. That's powerful. Each time we eat the bread, we drink the cup, we say that, that we too have died to ourselves and we, we put our everything, lock, stock, and barrel into Jesus and what he's done for us. We get a life that we don't deserve. So this week we will look at the why. Why Paul felt compelled and why he needed to actually uh, state what he said in this, stated rather in this text. So our outline will be simple this morning. Disunity, unity, and discernment. So to bring into focus or kind of to clarify uh, the issue that Paul is dealing with here, you wait for it, you knew it was coming, I'm going to tell you a story. Now my friends always, for those of you that don't know me, my friends always tease me ruthlessly saying that I cannot articulate anything unless I have either, you know, three things, one of three things. Either I have a pack of crayons so I can draw on the wall, or I have a whiteboard, or I tell a story. So here we go. My story this morning is the tale of two house guests. Now I have a friend. For many years, uh, I, we lived and worked in Athens, Greece. And I have a friend who was a research assistant to a very famous and very well-known American theologian. This guy is a premier scholar from a premier school. He was rich. He was powerful. His library was, like, immense. He was influential. See, I'm not exaggerating. This guy was the poster child of, of American evangelical colonialism, if I could say it that way. See, it's one of those guys that he creates a weather system around him wherever he goes in academia. And this guy was coming to Greece to do some research, and my friend phones me up and says, Heath, can this guy stay at your house? I'm like, ooh. I'm like, what an honor. I'm a nobody and this guy wants to stay at my house? I'm like, absolutely, whatever you need. And in my mind, in my heart, in my mind, I'm calculating, okay, what can I get from this guy? What would be the questions that I ask? What street cred would I get with all of my friends? See, 35-year-old Heath, so that was quite some time ago, as you can see, he was in his glory, and I laid out the red carpet for this guy. I gave him my son's bedroom to stay in. Sorry, Darius. I stocked the food, I stocked the fridge, rather, with the best food. I cooked him the best that I could. I had the best drink in the house. I wanted to give this guy the best of the best. I wanted to be thought well of him. I wanted, at some level, to be a footnote in this guy's research at that time. I'm like, yeah, what can I get? Ironically, this was the worst house guest I have ever had. He chain-soaked cigars on my, uh, my deck for the whole two weeks he was there. I won't even go into the stuff. It was just like, it was like a bomb struck my house and I was left staggering. Guest number two was a different sort. A few weeks, actually, a few, maybe a month after this previous guy, I get a phone call from one of my Greek friends, and he says, guys, Heath, I'm not going to be around, and I have a friend visiting from Thessaloniki, and he needs a place to stay for a few days. He's, he's become a believer in the last few months, and I want to show him hospitality. I'm like, okay. I'm like, he's coming down for business, and I need you to pick him up and bring him home. I'm like, ah, I could do that, no problem. But what I didn't know with this man, he was a member of probably the, one of the most heavily persecuted people groups 
marginalized ethnic groups in all of Europe. This guy was a Romani. This group of people were hated by absolutely everyone and everywhere they interacted. They are blamed for every societal ill, whether it's true or not. Their reputation as thieving grifters preceded them wherever they went, true or not. And the man that I picked up at the train station was from one of the tribes known for nomadic uh, caravanning. And at the train station, I'm confronted by my bias. So I take this man home. And to my shame, instead of red carpet, I offer him my red couch. I actually did have a red couch. Instead of the finest food and drink, I gave him the bare minimum of hospitality. Instead of an honored guest, this man was a nuisance to me. He had no means of transportation. Ironically, I, I got pulled into a lot of weird and shady deals by driving him around Athens. He had no money. He had no overnight bag. How are you going to stay for a week at somebody's house with no overnight bag? He borrowed money. He even borrowed a pair of underwear and socks. When he left, he hand-washed my underwear and my socks in the sink and left them neatly folded on my red couch. Do you see the problem, Christ City? Do you see the problem? See, on the surface, on the front of it all, I offered hospitality to both men, didn't I? I followed the letter of the law. I graciously opened my home. Yeah, I provided food and lodging. Yeah, I graciously opened my home. You see, the point of my story was the fact that I operated in a world of bias, and, and, and I actually engaged in what James, another author and teacher in the Bible, calls um, what do we, it's like, lost my notes. That's a first. Too much into the story. I engaged in what James and what Paul talk about is partiality. I'd like to read for you James chapter 2, 1 to 7, and I was guilty of this. And this is what the text highlights for us for today. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and assembly is like the church where we gather to have communion, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in this good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down on my feet, have you not made then distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Ooh. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are not the ones who drag you to court? Are not the ones who blaspheme and honor, honorable by the name which you were called? You see, James is actually articulating a lot of the same stuff that Paul addresses with the Corinthian church. It's a scathing parallel to what Paul is talking about. Partiality is a horrifying disease. But what Paul says here, what's even more troubling than that, is that when, when you're engaging in partiality in the very place where we were supposed to be equal, in the very place where partiality was supposed to be dealt with on the cross, and it blatantly disregards the table of the Lord. 
the very central place where we are to celebrate that we are united vertically with God is also the same place that we are united horizontally with each other. Whether you're free, whether you're slave, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're old, whether you're young, there is no individual privilege on the cross. The only privilege on the cross, the only privilege in the cup is death to self. The root issue is this. Paul says that partiality, a bias in the communion meal blurs, it obscures, it covers up, it nullifies the clarity and the reality of the cross itself. Hmm. Because Paul says in our text that Jake talked about last week that in the cross is we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And, and partiality covers that. This is why Paul in the text says that their meals that they eat together are not communion meals. They are not the Lord's table. Paul says that the gospel that is obscured, the one that you practice is not an upstairs, downstairs, Downton Abbey approach to communion. Let's look at verses 17 to 22 again. Hear this in the full force of what Paul intends. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you came together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you came together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order to those who are genuinely among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you not despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Whew. Throughout the entirety of the letter of 1 Corinthians here, Paul has been challenging practices and ideologies and thought patterns that the church were, of Corinth were engaging in, that they were these things that were undermining the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross. He talks about, you know, the whole idea of quid pro quo, divisions, lawsuits, sexual immorality, families, how we deal with that, how we engage in the culture around us, even points to our freedom and our rights. But now he is most grieved and most discouraged because this, this issue here, this issue of partiality is obscuring the gospel that's, that's supposed to be proclaimed in the table. The source of, of life and of unity. The source of our distinct community, Christ City. See, these... In fact, if you actually go to Corinth now, you can go into the, to the museum and you can actually see they've let out, you know, a Roman household was, you know, they had an interior and an exterior. And, and you can actually go see a mosaic that was one of the original floors that would have been or could have been where Paul was at and what he was talking about. You see, these, these Corinthian elite who were Roman citizens, what they would do is they imported the social practices of hospitality and and what they would do is they would have all their honored guests come. They would be in the interior part. You know, if you're wealthy, if you're influential, or if you're, you know, trying to up and rise, you would bribe somebody to get into this part. And what they would do is they would bifurcate this, this meal. And so then if you came late because you were working or you're a slave or you were able to only had so much time off, you'd come to the meal late and you would fed, be fed scraps like dog meat. You see, the poor, the marginalized, the weak, or relegated as insignificant. And Paul says that this is the very opposite of what the communion meal celebrates and identifies in. 
See, the Corinthians, the rich ones, were advantaging themselves at the expense of the less fortunate. And in doing so, they were obscuring the message of the cross itself, of Jesus and him crucified. This is, this is the disunity that Paul is actually addressing here. As a, as a side note, I actually find it really interesting that the other issues that Paul addressed, he's responding to something that the Corinthian church has said. In this particular instance, Paul is actually saying, no, I'm seeing something, I'm hearing something, I'm actually going to call you out on it, and I'm actually going to try and re-educate you to what the proper orientation of communion should be. Now, Christ City, we may not practice communion or the Lord's table the same way that the early church did, do we? But Paul's words here touch something in us that we still struggle with as a faith community. Paul's words hit the nerve of our horizontal unity with each other. Our unity in Christ and the transparency of the gospel in our lives. It's a most cute, acute rather, in the area of hospitality. As much as we'd like to shrug this sucker off as not relevant for today, Paul's rebuke to the church here is a rebuke for us as well. What, what is it that we do that obscures the gospel in our lives? Where does our partiality, where does our bias mask the beauty of the unity that's found at the table of Christ? Where does our racism truncate the message of the gospel to be proclaimed as a unified church? See, Christ said, my bias in my hospitality towards my house, case, house guests, it blurred, it masked and obscured the power of the resurrected Lord in my life, and I had to repent of that. Now, Paul here is not advocating for some sort of twisted unity rooted in a universal wokeism, but rather, he is reminding them of their unity sourced in the gospel itself. In the Jesus who was sent by God the powerful that became rich so that he could be one of us, so that he dies for us, that we can have life in him. And that brings us to point two. Paul looks at this Corinthian church and he says, that's not the way it's supposed to be, guys. Hello. See, we already looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, we looked at this, this point. Paul says to this church, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. Paul says that on the cross, all the barriers of hostility, all the barriers of division, all the barriers of partiality, all these brokenness, we become reconciled to God. We become unified in Jesus. And through that, we become unified as a church. And Paul says, look, we're one body. In fact, in the fall, we're going to look at what this one body means and how we act in our different giftings. When we repent of all the ways that we contribute and make allegiance to the world and the brokenness in it, when we submit and we surrender to Jesus, we surrender so as not as autonomous people, but rather one body unified in Jesus Christ by his blood and his bread and his body at the cross. Paul says in chapter 6, 19 and 20, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own. That's a stick it to the man of autonomy there. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Our, our unity that's horizontally sourced is in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I can't say that enough. The work of Jesus on the cross is us as a church. That's our origin story. It's not some sort of twisted spider bite. It's a, the work of Jesus on the cross is our origin story. Sorry, random Marvel joke. You could laugh, it's heavy. There we go. At the communion meal, what are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is true in our lives. This is why we make a big deal every single week that says, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe, if this is not true of you, don't partake. This is why we say that. Because when you take the cup, when you take the bread, you're stating for all to see, just like baptism, that Jesus price. Jesus Christ pays the price for every single time we mess up. Every time we've acted in our own interest. Every time we've shown partiality. Jesus' blood in the cup, we celebrate that we are forgiven and we're made new. It's also in the community that we can publicly state that Jesus has the power to give us and to allow us to place others' needs ahead of our own. This is countercultural for us. We are not our own Christ city. Proclamation of this message, it must not be obscured by selfish, individualistic tendencies of our culture, our autonomy, our, our, us deciding what's best for us. Now, pause for a sec. Look to the person to your right, to left, look around. If you call yourself a Christian this morning, you are unified with each other as one body. That means their self-interest is your self-interest. That means their burdens are your burdens. That means your, your concern for them is not one based out of what can I get from them, but, but how can I love them and serve them? This is hard for our culture to hear, and this is hard for the Corinthian church to hear. Now, as a side note, I think it's wrong here to assume that Paul's concern for unity, uh, for, for when he describes as one body, I think, I think it's wrong for us, for our modern ears to hear unity, one body as a democratic thing. Now, some of you, all of you just got triggered there. When we think of unity, we think of being uh, the unified body as, we think democratic process, equal representation. Interestingly though, if we think of unity here in those terms, in democratic terms, we miss the fact that our thinking, really our democratic thinking, really just couches our modern individualism and personal autonomy in kind of a, an equal egalitarian value system. That's a big thing. A one-size-fits-most ideology where equality means really a fragile coexistence and tolerance. Now you're all really triggered. I'm not saying these things are wrong in and of themselves, but what I am saying that Paul says something here far more radical, far more freeing. See, an elevated sense of democracy or equal representation does not restore the care and the concern that we have for the marginalized people, the marginalized other. A fragile, you know, selfish ideology based on individualism does not do that even if we have equal representation because the marginalized still get marginalized. It's competitive, competitive individualism. 
Paul's emphasis here really, what he says is that sharing in Jesus' death creates a rift between a fragile coexistence of individual democracy and a radical transformative community rooted in a non-competitive theology of the cross. A non-competitive unity of a new creation in Christ's blood. How often do we think of that when we partake of communion? See, our unity, Christ City, if it's not, it's not based on a fragile coexistence of some sort of societal moral code, hoping that we all get along, pretending that everything is okay, as long as you don't look at that horrible um, elephant of fractured, stained, and broken, marginalized people in the room. But rather, our unity is based solely on the cross. Our equality is based solely on the cross. Our need for it is based slowly so, so much on the cross, and we need to be transformed by it. And another letter to the Corinthians, because this is an issue that obviously they didn't quite get, because it's still hard for us to get. So in 2 Corinthians, a different letter, in chapter 5, verse 21, Paul articulates this. He says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the cross doesn't broker a deal of individualistic coexistence. The cross, it's where we die to ourselves. It reshapes our mindset. It reshapes our lifestyle. And this is what we were actually proclaiming at the table, at the communion meal. And this is why Paul was so hot under the collar with the Corinthians because of bias and partiality. And this brings us to our third point. <laughs> what do we do with all this? How do we discern? How do we root out our partiality in our lives? How do we, how do we uh, take communion in an appropriate way? Because there's been a lot of like ink spilled over this next little section here. So I'm going to read it. 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then and so that, so that eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body... Eats and drinks judgment on himself. Ooh. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And you're like, whoo, okay. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will be not, not fear judgment, about other things, I will give you directions when I come. Now, if you're like me, I'm like, what are the other things? I'm like, it's like a rabbit trail that goes nowhere. So some of you are thinking like, yeah, that really was helpful here. It's all clear now. Yeah, what, what, like, I'm going to die if I partake wrong? Like, really? Is that going to kill me? Probably. Anyway, well, I won't go down that. See, part of the issue here is we need to sort out what, it, what is descriptive and what is prescriptive in this little bit. In other words, what is Paul describing in this context and what is Paul actually telling the Corinthian church to do? The key, I think, is in verse 28 and 29. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. See, for Paul, the, the social or the horizontal aspect of communion and the problems of partiality 
are actually secondary to him because they're founded in a misunderstanding of the vertical orientation that Jake talked about last week or the saving aspect of the cross. In fact, Paul's concern for the obscured social outworking is actually, he's like, no, this is, this is a reality because you don't get this. You don't get that Jesus saves you. So to examine yourself, to discern in the body, is to understand that the cross is the ground and the source of our identity transformation. <coughs> Excuse me. I stated at the beginning of the sermon that the Lord's Supper is the place where the past, the present, and the future meet. And you probably were confused by that. See, sharing in communion meal together, we are sharing participants. We are participating in the death of Jesus for you. This is a past event that's made present for you right now. Sharing in the communion meal is to be mindful of the uniqueness of Jesus who gives himself in grace for us. And I've already said that before. But what Paul so also reminds us here is that in the cross, it stands in anticipation. In the table, it stands as an anticipation of a final judgment. This is a future event made present for us right now. Unless a believer examines himself in the past events of the cross in light of this final judgment, and therefore he shares in communion, recognizing that we have a clean verdict now. We have life without shame right now. We, this has been accomplished by Jesus on the cross in the past right now for us. Unless we realize that this reality makes us as a body of believers different right now, then by default we obscure the gospel and we take it in an unworthy manner. Paul's hard rebuke is this. If we participate without acknowledging this point, we elicit a guilty verdict upon ourselves. Not grace and not mercy. Because we obscure the truth of the gospel, the cross, the very thing, the very locus of where grace and mercy is found, where salvation is found. Let me explain it this way. Paul's whole concern that nothing whatsoever obscure the truth of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. So to take in an unworthy manner is to negatively proclaim, instead of positively proclaim, it ne you negatively proclaim that your social interactions and beliefs obscure and hinder the power of the cross. That power which allows us to be forgiven. That power that has us be a transformed community. If we, to, to, to partake in an unworthy manner is to say something about yourself that's not true. If this pattern insists or continues, Paul says, instead of being judged on the cross right now, found guilty right now, receive mercy and grace right now, and have your life disciplined and transformed right now, Paul says that what you do is you defer that judgment and you will stand before God at the end of time in the future condemned without grace and without mercy. Oh, that's like Paul's mic drop there. Verses 31 and 32 articulate this. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But we are judged by the Lord. We are, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, the issue that Paul brings forward to the Corinthians, you know, about people being sick or being ill, this is just him um, articulating and describing what has happened in their community. But in a sense, it's true for us as well. We've just articulated that on, a, on an eschatological or a forward-oriented and a theological level, 
intentionally obscuring the gospel of the cross leads to condemnation and to judgment and ultimately death. Read the rest of the New Testament if you don't believe me. You will see this hard truth played out. So, so where do we go from here? You're thinking, oh boy, I maybe didn't understand all this. Well, where do we go from here? See, we do not have a nexus line to the community table here. Let me tell you, I would really rather be drinking a nice French Grand Cru wine than this thing. But we don't have that. Why? Because that would say something untrue about who I am and about who you are. See, in taking the elements in an unworthy manner obscures and hinders the proclamation of the work of Jesus on the cross. Then what other aspects of our lives do we do this? What central things in our hearts and in our minds and in our actions obscure this gospel truth of the cross? That's a heart question. When we wake up and walk up and receive communion, are there things that obscure this in our hearts and lives? Now, for me, the list is probably long and storied. Everything from personal sin to subtly adhering to allegiance of the prevailing culture at large. But I think, for us today, as my story of my two house guests highlights, I think probably the greatest issue that we have to deal with as a church in our time, in our day, is that of hospitality, particularly in Vancouver. You see, over time, what was celebrated at the communion, this proclamation of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it actually permeated not only at the communion meal, but to everything that they did. And, and hospitality was the primary way people noticed that. There was a text that was shared at our preaching meeting, a, a quote by a, a theologian, and it's kind of wrecked me this week. Listen, it's by Amy Oden. I've spent the last few years researching the practices of hospitality in the early Christian world. In order to understand how early Christians struggled with welcoming the stranger, why did they bother? Why did, what did they actually do? One of the big discoveries is that the research was how radically early Christians practiced hospitality. Not because they were trying to be good, but because they were profoundly moved by God's welcome in their own lives and wanted to share it in concrete ways. Tending to the contagious sick that, that nobody would help, receiving foreign refugees, seeking aid, welcoming the poor and outcasts in their communities. They offered hospitality because they believed God really had new and abundant life to offer everyone. That's the cross. My time with these ancient faithful ones over the last few years has brought me home to the stark contrast between their understanding of hospitality and our own brand today, which can sometimes border on Walmart greeterism. Whew. This question, there's a question that's haunted me, and this just highlights a question that's haunted me, rather, for the last year or so. What would it take, Christ City, if Vancouver was a place known for its welcome in Christ in this way. What would it take for Vancouver, Vancouver to not be known as a, an aloof camaraderie in our friendships or, or a suffocating loneliness in our interactions with people? What would it take to be a place of welcome in Christ, in the gospel, proclaimed at the communion table? 
As we close, I'd like for us as a church, as a body, to pause for a second. In a moment of silence, I would like us to just, just examine ourselves. Ask God in this moment of silence, say, what areas of my life, where, where do I obscure the gospel truth to those around me? Where do I heap judgment upon myself? Where do I need grace and mercy and forgiveness at the cross? Where do I need to confess? So let's pause, and then I will close in prayer. Lord, we worship you because you are worthy. Lord, we worship you because you showed no partiality and you, you came to the world and became one of us. Lord, we worship you because you died on a cross for me so that I might become part of this body. So Lord, forgive me Forgive us the times when we show partiality in our interactions with those around us. Help us through your son's blood to be able to portray the true message of what you brought to earth and what we proclaim in our communion meal. We thank you and we praise you. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.